Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Christian Spilfogel is an experienced real estate investor, entrepreneur, and longtime RAIN member. With a background in various executive positions in both private and public technology corporations, Christian refocused on a new venture through investments in real estate and tech startups. Currently serving as the chief investment officer for his business, the Oliferous Group, he has proven to be a thriving real estate investor with burgeoning holdings in multi-unit residential and commercial property. Learning from his own prosperity, he values and believes in giving back to any community he's a part of by spreading his knowledge and helping and encouraging others to develop their own personal wealth strategy and path to success. With that in mind, let's get this show started. Christian Spilfogo, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Uh, we've got some work to do. We've been sitting uh, without uh, recording and uh, having great conversation. We should have it recorded, I think. So welcome. Thank you. And thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. And yeah, we, we definitely had a bit of a preamble. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get warmed up, you know, that kind of thing. It's awesome. So really appreciate you joining me on the show today. You know, Christian, uh, you've been a longtime member of the Real Estate Investment Network and the RAIN community, but also in the real estate world. But I always need to start the conversation for listeners in terms of how you respond to the question of, Christian, what do you do? <laughs> Oh, I guess this is my elevator pitch. <laughs> this is your <laughs> elevator pitch, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm a professional investor. I'd say the majority of what I invest in is in real estate. Uh, and then uh, I also do some investments, particularly in new tech startups, uh, which is a bit of my pedigree. So you're located in, you're not in Ottawa, you're outside, just outside of Ottawa? I don't remember now. 
No, no, I, I'm in downtown Ottawa. Oh, you're in downtown. Just... I couldn't remember just quite where you're at. Oh, so you're at the effect of what's happening. Hopefully, we'll release this in time. And uh, you know, you're you're at the effect of what's going on in the world of uh, the horn blaring from truckers and and the convoy. Yeah, that, that's true. I'm within earshot. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> okay, well, well, we will we'll get to that. I think we need to talk about <laughs> some of that. What's going on in the world, and uh, and it'll be interesting, you know, the conversation we have today versus when this gets released, which won't be too long from now. But so, tell me a little bit about uh, your journey into investing in real estate. Now, I know that you, you know, you weren't like born into it. I don't think so. How did real estate become, and you, you termed yourself as a full-time, I think, or a professional investor. So mm -hmm. has investing been on your radar for a long time? Kind of give me some background into how this all evolved to be what it is today. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because no, I guess, <laughs> you know, my wife and I basically graduated from school, you know, university. We were both uh, from Halifax and uh, we graduated uh, with debt. So, you know, I entered the world with a negative balance. So, uh, so no, it, it, that wasn't really part of how we, we started into real estate. And quite frankly, what I thought my career was going to be, you're going to laugh, right? But uh, my original career path was to be a particle physicist, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. I was going to laugh. I had to chuckle at least. <laughs> I was. Uh, I thought I'd be working at Fermi Labs or CERN or one of those places, but I also had this love of technology, and uh, and I actually ended up going down more of a path in the technology sector. Uh, you know, hence why you see some of the comments when I'm talking about tech. I, I have a pretty solid background in it, but the real estate piece of it, uh, my wife and I always kind of dabbled in in the. The thought neither of us had a pension so you, you immediately have to start thinking about well what do we do do we just work till we're 95 or do we you know put away a bit of a nest egg so we we always thought we wanted to get into real estate and then one day a building right next to my house uh it was a purpose-built fourplex um the owner said he was interested in selling it and i said to my wife uh at the time so what do you think and she said why not? So uh, that's what I did. It's my first purchase. And, you know, I think a lot of people can resonate with this, this next piece because, you know, and I'm sure you've gone through to Patrick, but I tend to be a bit of a, a conservative fellow financially, right? We were a single income family. Uh, I was buying this fourplex and I was trying to figure out, you know, could I afford it? You know, what if this thing was negative cash flow? What if tenants, uh, you know, I had vacancies that were too high for a while? What if interest rates went, then they were about five and a half percent of the time, but what if interest rate went to 7% or 10%? How long could I weather the storm? Mm. And I had this magic spreadsheet I put together that I spent a week on <laughs> figuring out every possible issue that could happen. And finally, I convinced myself, I said, yeah, we can do this. All right. And we pulled the trigger on it. And uh, that was property number one. Now, was this back in Halifax at that time or you were into Ottawa at the time? Where yeah, were you, no, where this, this was here in Ottawa. So in, uh, in Ottawa? It's in, yeah, my current home. And so the building, literally, I can look out my office window and see it. Do you still own the building today? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So how long ago was that? Like, where, where were you? Where were you in life? Where were you in your career? Or, you know, when you started to say, okay, real estate is, could make sense for me. 
Uh, this was uh, 2005. Mm-hmm. That's that's when we bought that building. Yeah. Um, so what, about 17 years ago now. Wow. And uh, it's a solid asset. It's in a fantastic location. Uh, it's right. It overlooks the canal here in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's a good quality asset. But it's my probably my least best performing asset in the portfolio. And there was always the temptation, and my wife always asked me, said, well, should we just sell that? And I can't figure out if it's for financial reasons or for, you know, just the fact that I, uh, that it's building number one, Yeah. right? I haven't let it go. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I've always found it hard to sell real estate. I've, I've, you know, over the past couple of years, I've had to sell a couple of different properties and... I'm always a little bit remiss. Like, it's like, oh man, I didn't really want to let that go, but I felt like I needed to for whatever reason. Uh, you know, certainly with COVID, I, you know, with my, some of my business stuff that was going on, I needed liquidity. So I felt like I didn't have an option at the time. And uh, so I, I think selling real estate is really hard. I've always been, uh, you know, a buyer, not a seller. So it's one of those things that we have to make those tough choices. And to your point, you know, 17 years later, you know, you, you know, you've got some, some equity sitting there and uh, then what are you going to do with it? Well, I've always found it more efficient. I can take the money out in a different way, mm. right? So yeah. it's an asset where I can put a lien against it if I need some, some additional cash. Yeah. Uh, and typically with our commercial assets, we're continuously refinancing them all mm-hmm. the time anyways, in order to be able to extract new working capital to, to do what we're doing. If I were to sell it, right, then I get a capital gains impact. Some of that has to go to the government, whereas refinancing is very efficient. 100%. So that, that's typically why I don't sell. You know, if I had, you know, a better way to use the cash or the asset really didn't fit my portfolio anymore, mm-hmm. then I think I would seriously consider selling it. But at this stage of the game, it really it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And these particular properties in the, that I sold and the timing was it didn't give, I didn't really have the opportunity to refinance and get the gain that I needed. And so even when I weighed it, it made sense. So to your point, uh, refinancing is often the way to go, especially in this environment where you're getting money at, you know, sub 2%. I mean, how can you not, uh, given what's going on in the world? Now, when you, you, weren't always in real estate. Tell me a little bit about your journey to get to where you are. You came out of university thinking you're going to be a particle physicist. Is that what I heard you say? I don't even know what the hell that is, but it sounds really fascinating. <laughs> so I don't know what that is. So what was what was your journey to get to the point where you were saying, uh, you know, this is really starting to look like it makes more sense than uh, having a career? Yeah, so, uh, and to clarify, right, I went into university thinking I was going to be a part of Oh, okay, physicist. that's what it was. Not came yeah, in, coming no. out. Okay. Most, as with anything, in, you know, when you're going to university, most people don't exit the degree they thought they were going to enter with. <laughs> and uh, I still finished a degree in physics and computer science in mm-hmm. the end, but I fundamentally shifted to computer science. It was just always a passion that I had, so yeah. it was an easy transition. For the most part, I was in a, um, I had a bunch of technology jobs, if you will. I started off as a software developer and then later on became a, uh, you know, a software architect, product architect, uh, went through management levels, uh, had, uh, 
one of the final roles that I had was a uh, general manager of a division uh, within a, a business that at the time was uh, about a billion and a half dollar business. Uh, you know, my division was probably in the order of five to 600 million annually. Mm-hmm. So it really helped develop, a, you know, I started off as a technology guy, but I finished as a business guy. And it was the business skills that really helped me in that transformation when I became a professional investor. And I, I use that because I, I say professional as opposed to just full-time investor because there, it's more than just collecting buildings and collecting revenue. You really need to run it as a business. And when I made that transition, it, it was an interesting culmination of issues at the time. Uh, one is I'd been in my current company at the time, uh, uh, at that point for about 18 years. And I remember we had just completed an acquisition and the CEO had brought us all together with the, the, the new company, as well as the old company that was there and said, uh, you know, asked everybody to give a bit of their background and the amount of, you know, how long they've been with the company. Right. And I said what I was doing and I said, and I've been here 18 years. And I really thought about it in my mind as I was saying it and said, I only ever meant to be here for five. Mm. Right? That was my plan at the time. And I realized I've been here too long, right? And I wanted to make some changes at the time. And then at, on the other side of it, uh, my wife and I had started doing a lot more training and learning and understanding of real estate and how to do it efficiently. So we took lots of courses and we just you know, honed our game up quite a bit. And then we went on a buying spree uh, in the, starting in uh, late 2016. We bought a ton of stuff in 2016 and 2017. And so at that point, by the end of 2017, you know, I, I was, you know, I enjoyed my old job, um, but I'd been there too long from my perspective. I was really fascinated with the real estate stuff and invigorated with it. And so I was trying to decide whether I was gonna make that transition, but there was a third element that came in, which was uh, my elder daughter. She had uh, significant mental health issues that had completely spiraled out of control at that point. And that really forced me to make a transition that was healthy for our family at the time. You know, she needed me there full time. My old job required me to travel two weeks of the month and and uh, she really needed someone to be there to help her with her uh, with her situation and be able to to grow. She had uh, she's diagnosed with a borderline personality disorder. And with a lot of people that have that type of condition, they attempt to self-medicate, uh, which leads to addiction issues, etc. Um, so it forced me to make the decision that I needed to make. So jumping into the real estate world, you know, I'd love to say I had the ambition, I had the foresight and everything, and I might have, but this really forced the issue for me, which was, um, which was really important. I don't know if, you know, let me, let me dig in here a little bit because it's always, I find it very interesting, you know, first, you know, one of my questions I often ask guests is, you know, what was your entrepreneurial journey? You know, were you, did you come out of the shoot thinking I want to be a business owner or did you grow into it? How did it, it happen? And in your case, you brought up an interesting point, which is, you know, you felt forced to do it given that you had 
a daughter, your of course your family that you're responsible for and that you care about, and you're going hold up. My priority is my family, and then you made that decision. Having said all that, I get it. Tell me a little bit. I'm interested in a couple things. Number one, that's a huge fork in the road. Like that is literally a fork in the road where you're having to make a big decision. Number one is looking after your family. And then of course, uh, shifting your focus in terms of what you're doing financially to support your family. And I'm sure that is, is as well off as you might or might not have been at the end of the day, it's still a financial part of it. It's an identity part of it. There's a thing that you're used to going to work and doing the job that you're doing. And all of a sudden that's shifting. Your wife is there. Uh, is was your wife working? Or is your did your wife work through that time as well? No. So here's the question I, I guess I have for you is that because you know, especially recently, Stephanie and I are really, you know, kind of doing lots of mindset kind of things. And I know that this may not land as a mindset, but it is. It is. There's a part of it that I'm going, what were you going through emotionally? And your thought process to get through this hurdle, you know, you have the emotion and the whatever it might be for you in terms of dealing with what your daughter's dealing with, you know, that's, there's lots there. Then you're also into this frightening world of, holy shit, I got to go make a, I'm going to go make a living on my own. Or maybe it wasn't that for you. Give me a little bit about what was your thought process? What were some of the things that you were bumping up against at that time? Or did the decision just come really clear? Uh, yeah, it's a fantastic question. And no, it wasn't completely clear. Uh, I had to talk through it with my wife. Um, it was clear that she wasn't going to be able to handle the next stage for Dominique. It's uh, my daughter, my older daughter's name. And she, uh, my wife had been dealing with this and trying to manage this to this point. And she had just come to a point where she says, I just can't handle this anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew that I had to take over. It was an easy ride to that point, if, if you will. And it sounds terrible, but my wife was taking care of things. And so I could focus on my career and what I was doing there. And then there was a sudden realization that I just couldn't continue that way. Mm -hmm. I needed to be the next phase for, for Dom, right. In terms of getting her there, but it was, um, it wasn't an easy decision. Uh, you know, it, it should have been, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, you identify yourself based on the career you have, the, the what your reputation is, you know, who you know, the knowledge, the, the network that you have. And moving into real estate full time was a completely different career, like not even related. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. The only thing I had in common was an Excel spreadsheet, right? And maybe some PowerPoint slides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it was a, a heck of a pivot and it was uncomfortable, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. One is I had to redefine my own identity, mm -hmm. if you will. I had to create my own new network of people, partly for social, but also partly for professional mm -hmm. uh, and to get that developed. And then the other thing that was difficult was, you know, of course, can I make this a success as a business? Am I going to have enough cash coming in the door in order to be able to uh, sustain what we're doing? And uh, you might think that because I was a high tech executive that we were already very wealthy, right? And 
uh, as you may know, I, I don't know, but uh, I think for a lot of people, you, your lifestyle tends to fit your income. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, being a single income family, you know, we had made some smart decisions early in life in terms of growing our equity. Right. So, for example, uh, when my wife was working at the time, what we did was, you know, we would live on my salary when we would bank hers and all the money that she earned went straight into our principal pay down on our house. Mm -hmm. So we did build up equity over time. But then the next question is, okay, well, now I've got to purchase properties and I got to figure out ways to not just build equity, but to develop a cash flow stream to sustain our life and our lifestyle, right? And it didn't even have to be an extravagant lifestyle. It just needed to be enough to be able to cover our current expenses. And, uh, and of course, what I needed to do to take care of my daughter. Mm -hmm. But it also forced me to really think hard about creative ways of creating cash flow in our operations. Mm -hmm. And then I began to understand how easy that actually is right? You just have to be a bit more creative about how you do it. And it taught me a lot more about the financial world and how things actually work and the way to really look at inflation and debt. And then my perspective started to change. So, so I apologize that that kind of went in a completely slightly different direction, but it was all part of that overall journey until I got myself settled. And that first year, right, in the transition was scary. Mm -hmm. Right. I had a little bit of an nest egg. Yeah. Right. To, that was going to run out. <laughs> so the reason I bring these, you know, because I know time and time again, you know, just being in the world that I live in with, you know, the national network of investors and business owners and just my own history around what I've done myself personally, as well as you know, how I've coached and been supporting people. I mean, there's some fundamental things that go on. And, and, and I think there's some real value in, you know, sharing, you know, the fact that these are transitional, like there is, there is the identity issue that you come up with you, you know, to your point, who am I, if I'm not that, I mean, I, there's lots of that that goes on. Uh, certainly with your daughter, you've got this scenario where you're actually having to support Dominique and your wife your wife not being able to deal with it or being able to deal with it, but not really being able to do that in a way that serves your daughter in the best way. I mean, those are big things that are happening in life. And, and so sometimes I, I, I realize that you just kind of put your shoulder into it or you put your head down and you just keep grinding away at it. But when you think back to that time and your daughter is doing very well, Today, we had a little bit of a brief chat about uh, that she's really, really done well. Uh, you know, there's a there's a part of it, you know, as a as a father of a daughter myself, I, you know, I just believe daughters need their fathers. That's, you know, they need their moms, but dads play a special role in, in daughters' lives. And when you look back at that time and you see how you dealt with it, is there anything that you would have done differently? Was there something that in that transition that you would share with somebody going, you know, make sure you, I don't know, eat breakfast, you know, work out, you know, how, who were you getting your support from? Were you, did you have a network of people that you could at least phone and bitch at or, or sit, you know, go, what? I'm losing my mind, whatever it might be. Do you follow my, is there something there that you look back and reflect on that and say, you know, here's some things that I would do and would have done differently, or here's how I would support somebody else that might be going through something like that. Another great question, but one, one of my, 
personal traits is that I tend to be quite confident in myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, I've come to understand that sometimes that's an unusual trait. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always had this, this belief that I can get through anything. Mm-hmm. And so when I was doing this, it was, it was uncomfortable. Like just because I'm confident doesn't mean I'm not uncomfortable. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. I, I have enough of a survivor instinct that at the same time, I just figured out my way through it. Yeah. Did I need to have other supports? You know, of course, my my sister would always be there for me. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, I didn't lean on those supports maybe as much as I should have. And, and because I was dealing with so much, I kind of isolated myself a mm. bit too. So I wasn't reaching out to my sister and my my parents as much as maybe I should have at mm-hmm. the time. My wife was absolutely a rock for me, though. Yeah. When I was dealing with some tough issues, and especially, you know, as you might appreciate, when you're dealing with somebody that's got mental health and addiction issues, it's uh, you'd be called to to deal with things at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be there the next day, you know, and. Uh, when I was dealing with some of those tough situations, my wife was unbelievable in terms of giving me the support that I needed, mm-hmm. right, in order to to keep going. So it was always a team effort. And I, you know, I didn't want to imply that, you know, she had given up because she really hadn't. No, she no. just changed the way that she gave support. And so, you know, what you said was was spot on was um, my daughter and I had have always had a very close relationship. So we figured between the two of us, if anybody was going to have a breakthrough with her, it'd probably be me. But my wife was always there, um, you know, at my side, supporting me and and helping me through this. And it's funny, you know, because just to go to that little bit of that journey, uh, because it is important to me, and I think it's important to a lot of people, is when you're involved in it day in, day out, and and when you're dealing with things like with mental health, this isn't something that's fixed in weeks. This is spans years. And I could see the progress right through it. It was small and it was always, it always felt like it was maybe 10 steps forward and nine steps backwards and maybe sometimes 11 backwards. Sure. (laughs) But I I could see it. and And I would often get the question, you know, from my wife, are you really making progress? Mm-hmm. And I would always have to test to make sure, am I helping or enabling mm-hmm. all the way through it? But what I could see, I could see the progress and I had hope for her. And she started to believe in herself as well. And she was a key part of that journey. I was really her support system at that point. You know, it's similar to the discussion we had earlier about sort of a logarithmic curve, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, you can't see what's happening initially. And then she hit an inflection point where she got better fast. It was in that transition from troubled to a productive member of society literally happened in a period of about three to four months. Did you, uh, Christian, just a quick question here. Now, in order for that to happen, I, I believe that the individual has to recognize that what's going on in their life isn't serving them. They have to recognize that they've got issues, and that they, and then they have to say, "I want to deal with this." Was there a time where 
she resisted that or denied that she had issues or was she pretty open to it early on? I'm just curious as I, I, hmm. I don't have a ton of experience at all in that body of work or in those scenarios. I have a little bit enough to kind of have some understanding of, you know, what it takes and, and the shift that people have to have. So for you was, or for your daughter, was there like a denial part of it or was she pretty open fairly early on? Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and I had no experience in this stuff when I started. I mean, yeah. this is being going into the deep end, but it, again, it's, uh, I have to do something. Sure. And it was, uh, at first she, she was so far over the edge. I don't think she really knew where reality was anymore. Mm. And, uh, I tried to find support within, uh, you know, our various facilities that we have, for example, at the Royal Ottawa and, uh, the mental health institutes and, and the very variety of, you know, professionals that were in the area. And we really struggled to find a way into the system to get her help. And I really, to be perfectly honest, I made her take the first step. And once she started to take the first step, she started to become more self-aware. Mm. And I said to her continuously, I said, you know, are you ready to, to take the net? Like, are you committed to this? Mm. Because if you're committed to this, I'm committed to this. Mm. But if you're not committed to getting better, I'm just, you know, there's no point in me helping you out at all. And she grew stronger and stronger over time in terms of her commitment. I would say that it really didn't take long, maybe three or four months. And then she was finally in a state where her answer would always be, yes, I do want to get better. And as long as she wanted to get better, I was there to support her and I do what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. When you look at that journey and when you, because of course, you know, we have whatever they're referred to as mental, uh, mental health weeks or mental awareness or whatever that might be. When you look back in that time, she's become a big contribution to that. The, the, didn't, we were sharing briefly, and I don't want to paraphrase it because I've got you here. Tell me a little bit about where she's come to and, and over, has it been over years now, Christian? Is how long has it been since she's dealt with? Yeah. No, long yeah. Time. She's, she's been good now for uh, just over a year, I would mm -hmm. say. She quickly completed, she had been doing some studies beforehand and mm. in psychology and counseling and so on. And uh, when she really kind of pivoted and got a lot better, she was able to quickly complete her um, uh, her program in, uh, in addiction counseling. Uh, and then she started to volunteer for um, not just food bank, but also family centers and so on sure. in order to help out. And she had a passion for it. And even as a volunteer, she had such great work ethic and dedication that she, you know, they quickly promoted her to a supervisory role. And then from there, she um, uh, she got a job uh, basically doing addiction counseling, but working with young offenders in particular. Mm -hmm. So she's been doing that. She's uh, developed a, um, uh, a mental health support group um, that uh, is it's based on Facebook. And she's grown that community significantly, and it's got worldwide participation in it. Wow. So it's become her passion. What a great story. And she comes from it, you know, she comes to it with a real understanding of what people will have to deal with. So she speaks to it from experience. I think those are the absolute 
you know, most powerful individuals in, in those spaces, you know, and, and I mean, there's whatever the addiction, whether it's alcohol or drugs, or in this case, mental health and a combination of all those things. I mean, the people who make the biggest difference are actually the people that have lived through it and they need guys that haven't to actually support them, get them over the line because, and then when they run with it, it's just, I just love the stories that come with it because there's so much that people are dealing with. When you look now, Christian, and consider mental health, you know, and you are, if you were to give just some fundamental guidance, having been through it as a parent with your daughter, I don't know, this is maybe my story. I believe that there's a lot of it that people are afraid to talk about because there's whatever shame might be involved in it. So they kind of keep it under wraps. If you're giving somebody that's listening to this podcast right now that is either dealing with a family member with mental health issues or they themselves uh, struggle with it, what would be your guidance to how do you how do you get them to go on, you know, to take that fork in the road that has them get help or has them help somebody in their family? Any kind of wise words based on your experience? <laughs> I don't know if I have any really wise words, but one thing that I've noticed is that when I started talking about it, other people start talking about it. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm happy to talk about it. Mm -hmm. It was a difficult journey. I mean, it wasn't just addiction and mental health. There was suicide attempts. There was all that stuff going on, right? Wow, so yeah. when I talk about it openly like this, what usually happens is people want to have a quiet word, right? Mm -hmm. And they say they just want to talk about what they're going through and, and get some advice um, or just someone to talk to. And the thing that I hadn't appreciated beforehand was just how many people are going through this. I, you know, would bet that just about every family has someone that's going through some sort of mental health issue. It may not be their immediate family, but it might be a sibling's family. Uh, it could be a parent or a grandparent, you know, it's, uh, it is very, very common, but you're right. A lot of people, uh, sometimes it's concern about the shame, maybe because they feel like they didn't, they may not have been a good parent, right? Sure. And maybe that contributed to the Blame issue. And, and, and that people will judge them at least that that might be the case. Or I've seen in some cases where people were afraid, particularly women, where they have a career at the same time. And they're worried that if, you know, their employer were to know that they had child that had significant mental health issues that it might distract them from their work. And I would hope to think that most employers wouldn't think that way, but nevertheless, people feel a level of insecurity. So they don't really want to talk about it for that reason mm -hmm. either. It's such an interesting, it's, you know, what you, when you're, as you're speaking about this, what came up for me is around the, you know, reality of what we're dealing with right now around COVID and lockdown. And, you know, I can't imagine because access to any kind of professional support uh, to whether it be doctors or whatever institute, hospitals, whatever that might be, you know, you seem to be kind of in front of that. You know, when you look at what it might, in other words, pre-lockdowns, so, or maybe there's some overlap in there, but it has to be very difficult for people, I mean, you've got the pressure of what's going on in the world today. I mean, everything from business owners to careers to the divisiveness of vaccinate, not vaccinate, mandate, not mandate. We're in the middle of an absolute global shift 
And then that in itself is actually going to bring out a number of issues and let alone the issues that were already existing and then show up today. So when you look at what you went through with your daughter, can you imagine or what do you suspect is happening maybe for some people, given what's going on in the world with pandemic and restrictions? I'd say that it has to have an impact on mental health, particularly on people who are particularly social. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a very social person. Mm-hmm. I like being with other people. And so, you know, lockdowns in that respect has been, you know, I'm sufficiently resilient that it hasn't affected me sure. that much, yeah. but I've coped with it in different ways. One of the reasons that I love the RAIN community and the sessions that you guys have is it's another way for me to interact socially mm-hmm. with people and get the stimulation that I need with others. So, you know, when you're looking at people that are natural introverts, I, you know, my, not, I'm not a psychology expert, okay, no, but what not. I've seen of people who are typically introverts is they've, they've endured this a little better, mm-hmm. right, than those of us that are, you know, highly social and extroverts. My daughters, they're both uh, introverts mm-hmm. uh, by a long shot. And my older daughter, Dom, she's, uh, she's funny. Uh, she's actually got an incredible sense of humor, but she uh, she said to me at one point, she said, "Dad, I I didn't realize that my lifestyle was called quarantine." <laughs> so she said, "I I was I've been training all my life for this." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's very good. When you let's go back a little bit, you know, I I just I I just like this topic right now, and so I hope you don't mind sticking on this path for a little bit. And but I want to go back. You know, as we have this conversation and maybe, you know, some listeners can take something away from it, Christian, is when you go back to your daughter, you know, her path, how do you think she got to where it is? It was, did you, did you, did, was there a diagnosis for it? I share a quick story and, and I'll try and keep it really brief, but I think it's what I, what I, what I'm, the point I'm trying to get. And it was, uh, I supported a, a friend who turned out to be, you know, to struggle with alcoholism. And I, this was many years ago. I went to him with meeting to meetings just to support him. And, and we went to a, a, a one time, a keynote where she shared that both her parents were alcoholics and she swore that she would not drink. And she went on to university and she went through university. She was going for her law degree. And in that whole time, and she was very social. And in that whole time, she would go out with friends and they would go to the pubs and do all the things they did back then. And she would never drink. And she then went to university uh, for her law degree. She passed the bar And the night she passed the bar, this is how she said it. She said, the night I passed the bar, we went out to celebrate. And she said, I had my first drink at, I want to say 25. And she said, I didn't stop drinking till I was 53. And, you know, her story was like that. I had one drink and that was like, so, and and she wasn't blaming genetics or anything else. She just shared the story. And I went, that's a really powerful story, which leads me to kind of listen to people who say, you know, addiction can be very genetic. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't done the research, but when you look at your daughter's journey and you consider what got her there or where she got to any, any insights into that? Like when you reflect on it going, we should have known there was a path there, anything like that show up for you, Christian? 
No. <laughs> that's a long-winded um, question and a very simple answer. Okay, go ahead. That's right. Uh, it's uh, and I'll, I'll give you a reason why. It's um, my wife's family history. My family history is very limited, um, so we don't really know enough about uh, about anything beyond our own parents. Uh, you know, it, it's a whole avenue of discussion. But my father was a was a war orphan, right? Uh, his uh, his mom died in Auschwitz, and uh, you know, my mother's parents basically died in the war as well. Uh, my wife's side of the family, uh, her grandparents uh, died in the war there with the Japanese uh, invaded China at the time. So we only know truly as far back as our own parents. So, so if it skips a couple of generations or something like that, you don't know. I don't. I suppose we may have noticed it when she was younger, but she didn't seem to be anything more than just a normal, rambunctious child that she sure. was. It really started to hit at puberty. Uh, we did uh, bring psychologists into the mix in order to try and get a diagnosis, figure out what was going on. And she was borderline personality disorder is not a well understood uh, condition. So and it's often confused with depression. So we thought as she was going through her various suicide attempts, that it was just some sort of depression thing, we we're trying to treat her for depression. And then there was uh, a psychiatrist at staff on staff at the hospital that said, I don't think she has depression. I think she might have borderline personality disorder. And that was actually the first step. Once she had a diagnosis, then there was a path to figuring out where we go from here. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was pivotal uh, at that time. That's cool. Well, you know, something good for you guys for getting through it. I can't imagine how difficult that would have been to you know, deal with a child that is going down that path. And I'm sure there was times where it felt... Uh, hopeless and maybe even felt a little helpless in trying to deal with it. You know, good for you guys for getting through it. Many marriages uh, have broken up through these kinds of scenarios and for you and your wife to uh, be so connected that you got through it and your daughter and you came out the other side of it and there's lots of light coming out of it because I'm sure it was pretty dark at times in going through it. So uh, good for you. And and uh, I'm really glad that you shared the story. I think there's a lot of... Uh, there's just a lot of, you know, value and insights that people can take away from this conversation, not the least of which is that you're not alone in dealing with what you're dealing with. And as much as you might feel you are, uh, there is lots of compassion and lots of empathy and understanding for these things. And of course, you know, that's why it's brought to light, you know, through certain events and, you know, our you know, we shine a light on it a couple times a year. And, and I think that's all great uh, if it opens up some doors for some people to come forward. Okay, so let's let's kind of change topics here, Christian. I want to go to, you know, talking about your journey of business. and, and But something that you said, you know, when you look at your family dynamics as a young man growing up, you take on what you take on. You're an intellect, you're a smart guy, you're a funny guy. So I don't, I find that those, and your, your humor is really good. It's not even dry intellectual humor, by the way, you're pretty, you're pretty quick, which is not how I usually, you know, relate to intellects and their humor. Uh, but that, that's all to say this is that when you look back and you're, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, what did your parents do? What, like, how is it that you really 
this, you know, took on the journey that you took on and, and then you were able to shift, you were forced to shift. Now you look at the shift and you go, okay, well, that's the best thing I've ever done or maybe not. But tell me a little bit about growing up. Where, where did your parents come from in that context of being an entrepreneur, being a business owner? Were they there or what was their background? It's funny. Um, my, no, my parents were, uh, well, my, my dad was a civil servant. He worked, uh, at CBC. He did, uh, production for, uh, for CBC. Very good at what he did, but he, he's still of the mindset of you work for one company for life. And, uh, sure. I remember when I first changed jobs, I, I had a job and after five years, I went and worked for another company and he said, what are you doing? <laughs> That's not the way you're supposed to do this stuff. My mom was a nurse and she, um, you know, she was a nurse all of her life. So she changed practice fields, but she, she stayed as a nurse the, the whole time. Uh, and on my wife's side of the family, I wouldn't say that uh, her parents were entrepreneurial at all. So really when I started my career, I was very much of the school of thought of you work for somebody and you, you do a profession of some form, and but you're going to be working for a company or an organization. And so I didn't really, I wouldn't say that I had a natural entrepreneurial spirit. Um, you know, and even later on, I was working for a high tech company and the, the chairman of that company is a, a well-known entrepreneur named uh, Terry Matthews. At least he's well-known in the Ottawa circle. He's, he's done some amazing things. And he is a real entrepreneur. He's, you know, uh, some people coin the phrase, uh, you know, serial entrepreneur. I'd call him a parallel entrepreneur. He, he doesn't start one business after another. He starts 10 of them at a time. Wow. So he's, uh, and he's got all kinds of incubators going all the time. So it's really, you know, I, I became friends with Terry through, through that whole thing. And so I was continuously surrounded by entrepreneurs and thinking, gee, maybe I should be one one day. <laughs> you know, until I was forced to make the change, I, I didn't ever take that leap. I kept thinking I was going to just need a bit more time, a bit more settled, maybe a little bit more money in the bank. It was always a reason. Mm-hmm. And, and so with everything we talked about before, it forced me to take on what I really should have done ages ago. And I really should have, knowing what I know now, and and I really enjoy the world of real estate. I have fun with this every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, this is not work. This is just part of our life. And it's given me such incredible freedom. It really has. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, someone else had asked me to do, you know, a bit of a, a story about how I pivoted, right, to, to this entrepreneurial piece. And the, the, my opening slide and my closing slide was basically about freedom, right? It was about crossing that fence, uh, if you will, to get to the outside and escape. But my closing one, which really kind of makes a lot more sense, is when you've got a good job, you're living in a gilded cage, okay? It, it's comfortable. It's easy. Everything is there. But when I left that cage and became my own, my own boss, if you will, I just felt free. I just feel completely autonomous. The fact that I was able to help my my daughter was an artifact of my new life. It was if I needed to drop what I was doing at any given point in time to focus on her, and it would be unpredictable. I never knew when I would have to be there. I would always make a point every day to be there, 
but I had to have that flexibility. And it gave me that level of freedom. If I want to stop tomorrow and just take a week off or a month off or six months off, I can't. Right. Yeah. So now you're, you know, you use the phrase, which we use often, which is treat your real estate investing like a business. Now you're, there's, there's something about your business model. Like you're very specific in terms of what you, what real estate you buy, uh, what you want it to look like. You have a very, it appears that you have a very clear picture of your end user, the demographic, your your client slash tenant profile. Give me a little bit of insights into what you're doing, the types of properties, and how did you get on that particular path? Great question. And I guess I would say because I have a great answer. Um, but <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At first, what I was investing in, so... When we first started investing, we were investing in buildings that we wouldn't mind living in, right? It just felt a bit more comfortable and natural. I, I don't think when we started, it was that we were clever enough to think about the actual demographics in the market. That that developed later as I began to really understand it as a business. Um, once I really started to think about it as a business, when I made that transition, I started to think about who our target market would be. So researching who is most likely to rent in a particular area, what would they typically be looking for, what category of tenants would likely be less problematic, and also what demographics would typically uh, move. Uh, as well. So we live in Ontario, so we have rent controls here. And one of the things that we have to be very conscious of is that if you buy a building, for example, that has a lot of tenants that are not likely to move, your ability to improve the return of that particular building is going to be very limited. So when we're doing a purchase, what we'll typically do is look at the demographics of the building. So we'll say, okay, fine. One of the simplest assets to pick up is a building that has uh, under rent, you know, that's fundamentally under rent, is otherwise in good condition. And then if the target, if the demographic within that building are basically people in their 20s or 30s, life happens. We know that they're naturally going to move. Uh, it's just a question of when, but it's not going to be in 20 years. It's probably an average turnover rate of two to three years. And I don't like to force people out. Okay. This is their home. It's, you know, when we get into the rental industry, we have to understand that we are providing a service and that service is for tenants. And we need to be able to respect the rights of those tenants and their need to be able to have a stable home. I don't go into an investment thinking, okay, I'm just going to force these tenants out. I'm automatically going to do cash for keys and get them out in order to be able to generate a profit for myself. It's just not the way I'm built. I can't, I can't do that to people. So what we'll typically do with those, those tenants is, you know, we'll, we'll pick the one that we, we know that are naturally going to move. And if they're great people and they still want to stay there for another 20 years, that's fine. You know, unless they're causing a problem, and that's a whole different situation. But in behind that, Christian, has got to be the issue of not even cash flow, but I mean, it's still got to be a viable business financially. So in other words, you know, you may not write a check, you know, cash for keys or whatever that might look like to get a, have a tenant move on so that you can get 
current rents. But I mean, that's part of your decision making process. I mean, do you think in that case you're missing opportunities because you're not willing to do that or it just doesn't matter because this is my model. This is what I do. And we just keep sniffing around until we find the right deal that makes sense. Is that, is, I mean, I guess that's another way to look at it. Well, we always have to balance business efficiency with ethics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sure. And so I won't do something that doesn't feel right to me. I just won't. Mm -hmm. So, and I get enough opportunities where I can do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, I have a portfolio under contract right now um, that uh, we've been able to move ahead into March for a close. Um, that set of buildings, uh, there's three in that portfolio, are I'm buying them at a six cap. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And, which is unbelievable, really. Yeah. Okay. So buying them at a six cap. So there's already significant cash flow coming out of that. It's accretive to the business. And uh, but there's still lots of upside in it. Mm -hmm. When we do a purchase, we're always either buying something that either cash flows now or we have line of sight to cash flow. And, and that second part is really quite important because you can't always buy something that's going to cash flow now. But if you can figure out a way to force the appreciation in the property and you have a solid business case behind it, then you still achieve the same result. So it's a little more heavy lifting, but the way I always think about it is what's that building going to be worth when I'm finished doing what I want to do with it? I figure out what my how much margin I want to make on that. What's my internal rate of return that I'm looking for? How much capital do I have to put in it? And then I figure out what my purchase price is going to be. And, and sometimes my purchase price is more than what the list price is. And that's fine because my business case is sound. But when I'm done, it'll cash flow. Nothing in our portfolio is negative cash flow, right? It's, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Anything in transition is negative cash flow. Mm -hmm. But once it's stabilized, none of the stabilized properties are negative cash flow at all. They all contribute. Now, your business is a family affair. Do you have, or do you have uh, outside partners, or is it you and family, or how, does you, how, do, how have you got your business structured? We, we basically run it as a family business. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I are business partners in this. Um, I tend to deal more with the, uh, the acquisitions, the financing, the legal related pieces. Um, if there are tenant related issues, then I get to deal with that, right? Mm -hmm. The problematic ones, but my wife deals with all the field operations. Um, it's her inspiration behind all the designs that you see. So I post a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it's very cool. I love the concept and the model. Very, very yeah. cool. Well, my, my wife is the creative genius behind all that stuff. That's, she wanted to be an interior designer when she first, uh, you know, when she was going to university. And her father said, if I'm paying for school, right, then you're going to either have to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, but she really wanted to be an interior designer. So as soon as she could dump her job, she dumped her job. Right. And then later on, when we started with the rental properties, this is her creative outlet. Mm -hmm. So you were asking earlier about demographics and so on. And I talked a little bit about the tenant profile that we're looking for. Yeah. We're looking for people that are going to be in class A properties. But part of what we also do is we acquire properties that are strategically important. So they are perhaps a distressed property in an A minus neighborhood. 
right? Or even an A neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we'll take that building and turn it into an A minus or an A property uh, and, and elevate it out. Now, often that allows us to have the support of the community as well. The neighbors are looking at it thinking this is a problematic building, right? We had one building, for example, where it was the source of crime on the street. <laughs> that's that's where all the bad people lived, and, yeah. and we went in and we we basically cleaned it up. That was a a development a redevelopment project. That was one of my, our first ones. It was a converting a triplex to a sixplex. So when we're looking at neighborhoods, we're thinking about that, and it gives us pleasure too to see beautiful buildings. We like owning stuff that's on main streets, and I figure if we love looking at them, other people are going to like living in them as well. So that, that tends to be where we focus. So we don't dabble in C-class properties and C, C neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that just looks like a whole lot of work. Cash flow might be good, but it sure looks like a whole lot of work. As I'm listening to you speak, I'm hearing somebody who has got compassion, empathy, you know, uh, community is, is something on your mind making a difference in people's lives. That's, these are all these kind of little nuances that I pick up in your language. So am I being accurate in that statement? Because that's how you show up for me. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, I like people, right? It's really very simple. Mm -hmm. And I care about people. And, and that's not just because of my daughter's journey. That might have put a bit more of an exclamation point on the whole thing. But sure. it, uh, uh, I do care about people. And I, you know, we're all in this together, really. <laughs> and so I don't want to be the problem in someone else's life, right? If I can be someone that makes their life a little bit better, then that makes me happy, mm -hmm. right? That's what gives me joy and gives me energy. It's, it's one of the reasons that, um, you know, I like participating in landlord help groups, right? Where I'm typically getting advice, et cetera. I don't gain anything from that, uh, you know, from a monetary perspective or anything, but it gives me joy to know that, I'm helping somebody either through a difficult spot or helping somebody uh, get to their next level of, uh, of being able to perform. And at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of what, uh, you know, gets me going every day. Well, let me ask you this question, because when I listen to that particular conversation, you know, we look at the fundamentals of where, you know, you used even the word joy, right, is most people don't know where they find joy. You know, we always go back and we often go back and have conversations with, you know, even our coaching groups is that you've got to be a contribution. You have to make a difference to you. you absolutely. That's where fulfillment lives is in being a contribution. That's where significance lives, which is a is a, actually one of the fundamental needs. It doesn't come from a place of, you know, put me on a pedestal, but that's when you're being a contribution, you get to be significant. You have some clarity around your values. That's obvious. So when I think about living a values-based life, and most people don't even understand their values, yet you do. So, you know, I'm looking at that question and, and go, were you always aware of them? Or does that work that you did afterwards? How did you get clear to what lights you up and what brings you joy? I've always been passionate about whatever I do. <laughs> that, that's the only way I can perform well. Um, and whether it was in my previous career or, or not, whatever I was doing, I had to have fun with it. And if you're having fun with it, you'll excel at it mm -hmm. uh, because it's, you're not thinking of it as a job anymore. You're thinking of it as, as your passion. Um, 
And even in real estate investing, uh, to me, there's great things that you can do. It's such a huge field that you're never going to be an expert at everything. You're not going to have done everything. There's not enough time in your life to do everything. And there's always so much more room to expand it. And I, the other piece that gives me joy is learning. I love learning. I love growing. I just, if I'm not learning, then I start to get bored. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so while we have a pattern for what we do right now, our ambitions, our projects get a bit bigger, a little bit more challenging because there has to be something new that we're learning as part of the process and, and that I have to do. So I think that that part of it is something that, just naturally allows me to continue to grow and refine my skills and, and get, get to the next step. In terms of self-awareness, in terms of the ethical view, when the clarity happened, I, I mean, I've always been like this, so it's mm-hmm. not like just normal for you. But you do, you do recognize that's a differentiating point between you and others. You know, there's not everybody has that awareness. I mean, I see it every day. I mean, we're in it. So for for me, I'm I, I I'm always I, my attention always goes to that individual that has those qualities because I wonder sometimes, you know, is it intentional or is it just how you kind kind of came out of the shoot? So nature or nurture? That's a question I often ask and I look at. And so for you, you have the awareness of it. And so I'm wondering if that is something that evolved or do you developed or it's kind of at the core of who you've always been? Hmm. I, I'm not sure if it was at, always at the core of who I was. Maybe it was. I mean, there's certain attributes that I think have persisted sure. through, through time. I think as I got to experience life more, as I began to understand other people more, seeing what their situations were, I think I started to develop more of a conscious, if you will, to realize that we can have an impact on other people's lives. And so as I got older, I think maybe that's an area of wisdom that I gained. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably more in the uh, the nurture side of it, if you will. Mm-hmm. But where it really crystallized for me and why, when it started to become a, a key piece of the way we even operate our business was when I was putting together our original uh, message map. Um, so when we were creating our website, and creating a website actually you know, can be a very good experience if you do it right. And what we did when we started the website was we said, well, what are we going to say? What do we want to put on that website? Yeah, what's the message exactly? And when we start advertising or marketing, what do we want to say? So uh, I started with the concept of the message map. And there's a good, there's great YouTube videos. There's like a great one from Forbes, I believe, that's probably about three or four minutes long that describes the concept of the the message map. And it was funny because my younger daughter, Veronica, who, who works in our business now as well, I had her do that as one of her first exercises. Well, let's build this message map. And there were certain things that we really wanted to get out, but it was crystallizing on, I had to search inside me to think about, well, what do I really stand for? You know, if there were three things, right, what would they be? And it became clear that these were things that I could say, and I was always going to be able to live. 
And so that became part of our message map. And then we, Veronica went crazy with the message map because she kept building more branches on it yeah. as it went out. Yeah. And it's this beautiful Miro-based image. And then all we did was we passed that to our web designer, uh, who's Kate. And I said, Kate, build this. Yeah. <laughs> So I can't step over. I got to ask you the question. So, you know, when you, what was the answers to your question of what do you stand for? So the, uh, we believe in ethical investing, yeah. right? We have pride in our properties, mm -hmm. right? So those are probably the, the, the two key pieces in there. Yeah. So, yeah. I wish that, you know, Stephanie and I, in our work on Mindset Matters with Rain, with all of the work that we've done over the years, if people could understand and get to what they stand for, because it changes everything. Yeah. You know, there's the old phrase when you, you know, when you, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And the reality of it is, is that when you take a stand for something based on what you value and what your values are, decisions get so easy because it's either in alignment with what your stand is or it's not. And it's not that somebody else's stand is wrong or their values are wrong. They're just not in alignment. And that's a big lesson for anybody to get in their business and in their life. And so you just articulated it really, really quite well. So uh, I appreciate that, that because it really speaks a lot to lessons that need. And uh, I would hope uh, and I always hope that people learn. And I mean, I've learned them all the hardest way, the most expensive way. I'm not nearly as smart. You know, you got to hit me way harder to get it over, you know, to get it through my head. But these are, this is such an, uh, 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 such a key part of business and life in general is what do you stand for? You know, what are your values? And man, oh man, it's a game changer. So I appreciate the fact that you shared that. And actually, I'm going to have to check on message map and uh, I'll have to Google that, Google that stuff and figure out what it is because it's a real, it sounds like very, very cool. Well, I'll send you the link and uh, I can send a, a link to the mural map so that you can kind of take a look at the way we built it out. Fantastic. We'll share it with the, we'll share it with the listeners. Christian, just to kind of go off a little bit, when you look at what you're doing today in business, and you you know you've built your real estate portfolio. You've you're active in your business. Do you have a do you have a, a vision for it? Is it like okay, X amount of dollars, X amount of doors, or I'm just going to keep doing this because it's fun and I want to keep doing it and build you know build it out and I don't know legacy for the girls or whatever it might be your daughters. Do you have a vision for your business that way? What do you see in the future for it? There's two paths I could have taken. I guess uh, one is if my children were not interested in being part of the business, then I'd be just looking at it in the context of what do I need for my wife and I, uh, plus the fun factor. So in that context, the reality is um, that uh, I could stop now. I could have stopped a, a few years, a couple of years ago, to be realistic, a couple of years ago, and I, I would be fine financially. I don't need to keep doing this and being continue to build it. I build it, one, because it's fun, right? And I like building this, this business. And the other is that, you know, uh, I'm a bit ambitious, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, as well. And sometimes I have to rein that in a bit because I, I can be a bit too ambitious beyond the ability for us to necessarily execute. So I always have to balance that out. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it now is my younger daughter, Veronica, as I mentioned, she's coming to the business and she has a a very strong interest 
in continuing the business. So she's become part of my succession plan. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm teaching her and educating her in all of this stuff. And, you know, I'm waiting for the day where she basically will be effectively running this business. And then that's a bit of a legacy then that I can leave to her and her family and quite frankly, the, the rest of the family. So, you know, when I talk to Dominique, for example, she Dominique is incredibly brilliant. She's really very smart and uh, she could easily run this business, but her passion right now is in, you know, social welfare side of things, right. And counseling, et cetera. So, uh, and I remember when I was asking her about it as well, because you have you know, you have this funny situation, you may have gone through it where you've got two children, right? Who's going to be in charge? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I put it to Dominique first and she said, Oh, get Veronica to do it. She'll be really good at it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I just want my share and I'm happy. So. <laughs> and away we go. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, as we, you know, so first off, I appreciate this conversation. I think there's been, there's so much in all of this and, you know, you've got so much depth and where we could take it, but I do respect your time and, and what you bring to the table with all of this Christian. Um, as we start to wind down, we, you know, I always have my, you know, my favorite questions that I ask, you know, getting to the end of the show. They're supposed to be rapid fire. That was the original intention. They're never rapid fire, by the way, rarely. And, uh, but that's okay too. So, um, you know, I, I, there's so much here, you know, in terms of what you bring to the table, you know, certainly within the rain community and always appreciated, uh, your, you know, the way you participate and what you bring the, the thought process, you know, around being a contribution and really understanding, you know, what ethics is really what it can represent for having, you know, being successful in business. And, you know, the one thing I want to just maybe get to with all of this is when you reflect, you know, one of the things that I know in my own life at this point in my life, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm definitely, you know, I'm now north of 60 and, and seems to be picking up velocity in the heading north. But the question, you know, there was a time where I kind of would be in a, a narrative or a story that I wish I would have then, I should have done that. And what I really come to is an understanding for me, and this was actually some time ago, years ago, that I realized that the journey that I took got me to where I am today. And I love where I'm at today. You know, to your point, I'm like you, I love to learn. I am ambitious. I have no qualms about sharing the fact that I'm on the Freedom 95 program because I never want to quit doing what I'm doing. I love it. And I'm actually inspired by some interesting cats that I see, you know, and, and I'll use this because I think you've, well, you would know of, of course, Robert Kiyosaki as an example, you know, you know, the guy's 75 years old. And I just use him as an example because there's many like him, uh, Ray Dalio. I mean, these guys are not young men and they're just like killing it still. And whether you agree with a Robert Kiyosaki view of the world, because it can get a little uh, off off color and all the rest of it. I mean, I'm just fired up by all of that. So when you look at your journey and you look back, I don't want to say any regrets, but do you see how it kind of made sense to for you to be where you are today? You know, you you wouldn't want Dominique to go through what she went through, but by the same token, you know, going on that journey with her and being her, you know, there's probably some benefits to that. You know, you're going through your business the way you went through your business. It gets you here. It would have been difficult, but there's some benefits to that. Do you look at it that way or do you look back and go, no, I don't ever want to have to have gone through that ever? You know, what's your kind of, do you have philosophical? Philosophically, it's, it's really just a philosophical question. I just view of how you view it. Yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, your history makes you who you are. 
I think, right? With with some uh, curation, right, mm-hmm. in, in the process sure. as well. Of course, I wouldn't want my daughter to have gone through all of that, but at the same time, she made me a better person, mm-hmm. right, through all of that uh, mm-hmm. process. And, uh, you know, not just in terms of my career transition, but in terms of even the way that I think about other people who would have mental health issues. Sure. I've always enjoyed everything that I've done. The only thing that I would say is that, you know, uh, getting into real estate is something that I probably should have done a lot earlier Mm -hmm. um, and made that transition. Uh, I wish I had done earlier. Uh, I would be much further along. I'm very impressed with what I've done to date, right? Yeah. The, you know, over the relative short period that we've gone from, you know, relatively small to a full-time business that has real cash coming into the business as well. But at the same time, if I didn't have elements in my career where I learned fundamental skills in business, I don't know that I would be as successful as I am now. Mm-hmm. So all these things really... Uh, are important building blocks to get to where we are. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to look back and say that I have regrets in that respect at all. But the other thing you're, you're probably gleaning from me too is that while there are people that have you know depression in their lives or or issues of that that form, my psyche tends to be on the other side of it. I'm always the optimist. I'm always looking for new things to do. Um, I'm always happy. I'm looking for the good. It's, uh, you know, and I don't think it's a defensive thing. It's just who I am. It's, mm-hmm. it, I don't, I don't get sad very easily. Mm-hmm. I can get sad. I've been sad, but sure. I, it's not, it's not where I gravitate to. How are you for the pissed off factor? Do you get fired up? Oh yeah. <laughs> my, my mother is from Brittany. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, and that's good Gaelic blood and I have that Gaelic blood. So I'll be nice and even keeled. But I can get to a level where it just gets me to uh, zero to a hundred, right? Very, very quickly. <clears throat> well, we've done a good job avoiding politics today because you and I can both get fired up about politics and what's going on in the world. That's for damn sure. And uh, you know, that's I think that's one of the uh, for me. It's one of the things that really gets me going because I just see what's been happening over the past couple of years, and to me, the kind of the injustice of all of it, and it just is not. Yeah, it gets me just going in terms of where we've come to as a country, even as, a, as in the world, you know, the divisiveness and the polarity and all of the things that come with it is just like, it's both a fascinating time to be alive and it's also frightening and unfair, you know, just, and whatever fair might be, you know, I, I, I don't use that word very often because... I don't think there's a, such a thing as fair, but you know, really, I don't know how else to describe it. It just seems so unreasonable to be dealing with all the things that we're having to deal with these days. And maybe a guy like you or me, or you know, are equipped for it mentally, emotionally, and and but there's so many that aren't. And you know, and what goes, what's going on in the world, kind of quietly beneath the surface, if you will is those injustices of the mental health and the individuals who aren't getting looked after and and all of the, all of the things that aren't happening because of you know what I think is just political I don't know I don't even know what to call it you know it's just uh, totally unreasonable in my world it is and uh, I've generally you know the, the fact that I've got good Gaelic blood and I can 
immediately get to 100% very quickly. But at the same time, it uh, I don't hold grudges. Right. I don't, no. uh, you know, I get over it fairly quickly. And I think that's one of the benefits of going from zero to 100 is yeah. you can get back to zero pretty fast. Yeah. But I've always generally been pretty rational about it. I can get very passionate about things. Yeah. But I've spent a lot of effort, particularly over the last maybe six or seven years, to really think about where is the other person coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, uh, we were talking a bit before there about Stephen Covey, you know, seeking to understand, if you will. And, um, you know, I think the the corollary line to that is something along the lines of um, most people don't listen with the intent to understand they listen with the intent to reply. Yeah. And it takes a lot of practice. And even though I may have a position that I think I'm entrenched in, I try really hard to listen to what someone else is saying and to try and see whether I'm gaining any new insight here. And I try and make sure, because it's so easy to reinforce your own personal beliefs, to get caught in your own echo chamber. Yep. Especially with the algorithms that are out there today. You know, you're, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable actually, but it's happening. Yeah. And, And you know, what's interesting, maybe those algorithms have picked up on my desire to seek to understand, but usually what I'm seeing in my feeds these days is the opposite view to what I the other side. hold. Yeah. I think you have to go out of your way to look at the other side. And, you know, that's what we were saying earlier is that, and I do go out of my way to listen and, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood and to look at the other side, to actually see what, try and see what they see. It's difficult because I'm looking through a set of filters that doesn't buy into that particular narrative or that view of the world. And, you know, one of my favorite lines is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And so I really do work hard at trying to change the way I look at things so that I can actually gain perspective. One of my, both my gifts and my faults is that I see both sides and, or all sides. And and that is a gift, but it's also a fault because it leaves you in the middle going, I don't know, because I see both sides. And uh, it is an interesting time uh, to look at it, you know, to something earlier is that I don't carry grudges, you know, number one, you know, there's an old phrase and I don't like to me, I'll F-bomb before I use the word hate. I don't like, to me, it's a, it's such a shitty word. Like don't, it's like, don't, you can't hate anything, you know, because it serves nobody. And it goes back to whoever, whatever it came from, which is, you know, hating somebody is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, when we hate like that, it uh, metaphysically, you know, it just, we take it on and it's just so unhealthy, number one. And number two, it serves nobody. And the person that you hate usually doesn't even give a shit and they don't know. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. Hate is such an absolute term. It, it, uh, I very much say I don't hate anybody that I can think of. There are people that have come close, mind you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It came from an old, uh, you know, it came from a book I read. I don't know what it was. Tony Robbins, this many years ago. And he was talking about the power of words and, you know, he used hate. But he even said, you know, he says, you're in a meeting, something happens and they say something or uh, something happens. When you look at it and you say, that really pisses me off. Okay. So think about that feeling in your body. Step back from it and go, that's annoying. Right. 
The scenario really didn't change. How you express your feelings about the scenario changed. It also changes, you know, literally how your body responds to it. And it's just an interesting concept. And, and it was something that I learned, like you say, so many years ago. I don't even remember the book. It was a Tony Robbins that I read at the time. And, uh, you know, I still use that in practice today. It really, it's become just what I do. I don't even think about it anymore. There's a, a, a quote, and I, I don't want to, you know, uh, misidentify who it should be attributed to, but it, it basically, it's a, an old one. And it basically says, uh, you know, anger is the punishment we give ourselves for someone else's mistake. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Marnie will have to Google that so we can attribute it to who it needs to be. Okay. Listen, see, it even took me a long time to get to the rapid fire questions, Christian, and we haven't even got through them yet. Gosh. Okay. Here we go. Rapid fire as we wind things down. I appreciate your time today for sure. Tell me a little bit about, just quickly, do you have a self-care routine? Are you physical? Do you meditate? Do you have a morning routine, an evening routine, uh, any of that self-care stuff? Yeah, I, I mostly uh, an evening routine. So when I get up in the morning, I really kind of like to get to work and to, go, to get going on things. So I don't really start with a fit, you know, uh, an exercise routine there. But once the day wraps up, usually about six or seven p.m. Right, I'll just go for a walk, mm. and I find that you know it's a great time to either uh, just. Uh, you know, take the time to think through things uh, yep. without distractions or, uh, or quite often I'll listen to podcasts, including yours. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you get to listen to this one for sure. That's, That's great. Right. Yeah, you know, by the way, you know, for listeners, walking is powerful, right? We talk about fitness levels. I talk about fitness levels and wellness. Fitness is one attribute to health. You know, you can talk about it, but it doesn't make you any more well. You can be, you know, the guy who runs or the person who runs triathlons. You can be the person who runs marathons. It does not make you any healthier than the individual who goes for a walk in the evening for 40 minutes every night. Wellness is huge and it is, uh, walking is like, it's a gift. Just walk. That's all you need yeah. to do to be well. Interesting. Favorite book. Do you have one or one that you gift often? Oh, gee, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a tough one. I, I don't do as much reading as I used to. I, I've been to hard science fiction. And so, you know, I'm reading uh, the Manifold series now by Stephen Baxter. But if the book that I would gift to somebody would probably be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Mm. And not because of the story, but because of the gift of the writing that he is. He, he was such a talented writer that I found that his words were immersive. I, you know, you would, you would lose yourself within the story because of his writing. Wow. I love yeah. when we come across authors like that. I don't read enough fiction. I you know, generally save uh, fiction for vacations, and, uh, but I don't take enough of those. So I'm, I'm going to have to take up. You're inspiring me to start thinking about fiction. <laughs> What's one job you do, even though you hate to do it, but you do it because you're good at it? Any of those? Uh, I try and avoid them when I can, but I'll tell you, my wife likes to put me to work on some of her pet hobbies and uh, because she knows I can do it, right? <laughs> and I, I, I stopped resisting. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, it would be things like some simple maintenance things that she needs or needs me to build the, like the other day I had to reconstruct a light yeah. that she loved because yeah. 
you know, she had had three different lights with three different components. She wanted me to completely reassemble it into something else. And, uh, you know, at first I used to resist this, but now I just know this is just part of me giving back to her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's the story of many husbands. I know that I'm one of those as well. Do you have a favorite swear word? Oh, yeah, it's definitely the F-bomb. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the But same. I'll tell you why. Why? You know, because I, it's because it's such a versatile word. It is. Right? It can be used as an adverb, an adjective, a verb, a <laughs> noun, a subject, right? It, so it, it's just so malleable. It, it, it actually, if, you know, it reminds me of, a, I don't know if you know, remember this song, I think it was from the 70s, right? But it's basically it was F is not a dirty word. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember it, but I, uh, now I'm going to Google that shit. Uh, I'll send that to you, right? <laughs> so, That's uh, awesome. But it, it, it's perfect. <laughs> What are you not very good at? Anything that really jumps out at you that you're, even in your business that you've got, that you're just not good at it? I'd say reading people, right? I'm, I, that surprises you know, as much. Yeah, I, I suppose it's one of those things that I rely on others for. Like, mm. for example, my daughter, Dominique, is very intuitive about people. My wife is very intuitive about people. I tend to, start with focusing on the good in mm. people. And so I think it messes up my radar when something's not quite right. I'm not good either. I think th that's because we're nice guys. We, we, that's what I say. <laughs> we'll go with that. <laughs> well, so let's go with that. Your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Oh, that's easy. My room. Absolutely. It, it, uh, I, I can't sleep in a messy room. I just can't. So, but okay. then my car and finally my office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's something about along that lines as well. This is a question I added because of JG. iPhone or Android? <laughs> because I have a technology background, I always look at it as tool for the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't get religious about these things. It's very much of uh, I've worked with Macs and Linux and PCs and iPhones and Android. My current phone is an iPhone. I find the environment to be uh, works very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, but you know I can see if if I needed certain aspects within the Android world, I'd go Android. I'm just yeah. not religious. I have both. I use both. I don't have a preference one or the other. I'm like you. It's a bit of a utility. And I have some things that I like about one and that I don't like about the other and vice versa. Okay. Do you have a favorite tune, favorite song, favorite band? Yeah, th this is, uh, yeah, I, I love music. Okay. And my taste in music is astonishingly broad. Okay? Oh. There's, uh, um, I can listen to... Uh, uh, you know, Eric Satie at one moment, or I can be listening to Def Leppard the next moment. I, and I tend to tune the music to what I'm doing. Mm. So if I'm working, my go-to these days is uh, uh, liquid D&B um, because it's, uh, you know, I, I get distracted by lyrics. Yeah. So I like, I like the music. And then if the lyrics are kind of nonsensical or really just part of the instruments, mm -hmm. right, then, then it works well for me. So right now, uh, you know, my go-to song, if I really want to get energized, it'd be like uh, listening to Bluebird from Akoda. Um, but if I want to 
calm down. It'd be more like uh, new jazz, down acid jazz, down tempo lounge, that kind of stuff. Wow, you know, I uh, I find that for and I and this was done based on a study years ago, and I listen to Baroque when I'm reading or writing. And uh, I find it very powerful to do that. It helps me stay very focused. I'm not a music file at all. Although as a young man, I, I mean, music was my life, I, you know, like any other kid, mm. I think at that point. But I can literally, I hang out with people and I'm not kidding about this, is that I'll be talking to them and we'll be having a conversation and they'll all of a sudden, you'll see their ear perk up and they'll go, hey, that's blah, blah, blah. And and they're, they're referring to that band or that tune I, I didn't even hear it, you know, like I wasn't even hearing it and they pick up on it and I go, you know, it's, so it's an interesting, you know, people who are, you know, those individuals who are really into music, I find fascinating because my ear, I think tunes that shit out. I don't know, but, uh, I, I enjoy music. It's not that I don't like it, but I certainly am not at that level of, holy cow, I love music. You know, they hear it everywhere. It's interesting. Okay. Final question, Christian. What are you grateful for today? Oh, <laughs> a lot. Uh, to be perfectly honest, it's, uh, you know, I, I think I've had good fortune in my life. You know, I'm thankful for my daughters, my wife, my family, of course. Um, and I'm happy about, you know, what we've been able to accomplish together, right, as a family to get to where we are today. So whether it was by accident or by design, I don't know, right? But it's, you know, we're in a good place and I'm thankful for that. Fantastic. I'm always, first and foremost, thankful for my guests on the show. I'm very thankful to have gotten to know you better today in this conversation. And I really sincerely do appreciate your time. I'm always grateful for my family, my wife, uh, my dogs, my uh, home, and uh, the opportunity to do what I do and really being always wanting to be a contribution and supporting others in achieving their goals. And uh, Christian, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, Patrick. And uh, thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.